Hi, and welcome to Economist on Zoom Getting Coffee. This is your host, Danny Bahar. Today, I'm pleased to have Professor Ivan Werning joining us. He's the Robert Solo Professor of Economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, or MIT, and he's an Argentine economist that has focused his research on macroeconomics, international economics, and public finance. He has a PhD from the University of Chicago, and he's a member of a number of organizations, including the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's a fellow of the Econometric Society and a research fellow at the NBER, the National Bureau of Economic Research. We just had a very fascinating conversation about macroeconomics, and in particular about inflation, which is this topic all of us are really thinking about. So without further ado, let's listen in. Ivan, welcome to Economist on Zoom getting coffee. Hi, I'm, I'm very pleased to be here. Thanks, Danny. For a while, I've been avoiding macroeconomics with all my heart. Part of it is maybe because I wasn't born in Argentina, and we'll talk about that. <laughs> From my outsider perspective, that's become a topic that has a lot of structure and theory around it to try to understand the complexities of how you go from the micro to the macro. But now we are in a period of time where, you know, it's all over the place to understand exactly the forces that are driving inflation today. And I want to start with that because it, it happens to many of us. I, I was born and raised in Latin America. You were too. So inflation was really not far removed from us. We lived with inflation. Uh, but you being from Argentina, I think you probably have a lot to say about that, right? Well, yeah, we like to think we're the champions of everything. <laughs> <laughs> not just soccer, of inflation too. But for us, that's one of the first things we learn in macro in Argentina how to think about inflation and we live it. I was a kid and experienced hyperinflations and you might've also, I mean, Venezuela is close up there in the rankings <laughs> right now. I'm obliged to ask both of us, you were raised in Argentina, I was raised in Venezuela. And there is kind of a very interesting correlation between being Latin American and being a macroeconomist. I wonder to what extent you would say that you, you having been exposed to these issues growing up brought you into being a macroeconomist? I grew into being an economist slowly, but I saw so much as a kid in terms of crisis and inflation uh, that when I thought about economics, I thought about macro mainly. I was, you know, very drawn into thinking of what we can do to do better, basically. I mean, all my research is framed in terms of policy questions, optimal policy. I was exposed to a country that, sure, it has some political, many political economy issues. But there's also just huge disagreement on what the right policies are. And so I was driven by that to think about uh, what the best policies are. And that drove me mainly to macro. It's true in Argentina, at some point, we were mostly, you know, only producing macroeconomists, I think. We have many macroeconomists in academia, Fernando Alvarez, uh, Hugo Hoppenheim, and Guillermo Calvo. This goes on and on. But at some point, then we had a more stable economy. And I saw a, a tendency that we started getting more microeconomists. <laughs> You know, definitely with the global financial crisis, you saw a lot of interest in macro and macro finance uh, to try and think about that. I think this recent pandemic in general, that's the approach I've taken. I've really found it to be a place where there were big macro questions from the start. I mean, it was February, March, and we're going to, you know, how should we think about the lockdowns that are going to happen and should we be stimulating or not? And I got interested in those questions. We couldn't just use a macro, macro, aggregate demand, you know, sort of setup. 
you know, I approached it with, along with some co-authors with a multi-sector perspective because COVID was very asymmetric across sectors. There's a lot that has been said about the cause of this inflation and what is the way to fix it. And the conversations are, can we get out of this inflation without a recession? And the established idea is that inflation is a monetary issue. And of course, the Federal Reserve or central banks are the ones who actually, you know, have the task to to deal with it by by using the leveraging the interest rate. But that might be a very simplistic view, right? And I, I just want to ask you, what is it that we have learned or that we have not learned yet about inflation based on your research and based on, on, on the most recent research on macroeconomics? What are the things that we know much better that we didn't know before or things that we still don't know? Great question. I mean, I, I would really hook on the last thing that we don't know yet. I think what we've learned is that we don't know everything. That is actually knowledge. It's kind of upsetting, but it's knowledge. The typical approach to inflation that I was exposed to was very matter of factual. Inflation is just monetary printing of money and it's very relevant. I think it's a huge part of the, the, the problem. So those stories or models or explanations were maybe 95% of it in Argentina in certain time periods. What we're seeing today is a little bit more complicated, more nuanced, more subtle, pushing the boundaries of what we know or can all agree on. You see a lot of disagreement. So that's kind of an objective sign that we don't all know something <laughs> if we can't agree. The mechanism by which we had inflation in the US and Europe hardly has to do with sudden surge and money printing for seniorage regions, let's say. So it's not the kind of simple explanation that we use a lot in Latin America. Even those explanations, I think, are oversimplified because once the process gets going, there's a lot more to it. There's inertia. There's a lot of things that we have to think about, expectations. But it's hard to look at the, what the spark was in the U.S. and say it was this or that loose monetary policy. My view, there's basically my point of view is the picture just got more complicated and there's a lot of disagreement there. And that's made me think a lot about kind of the basic theories and models I was taught, although I think they're useful, how to go beyond them. Even if the cost, it's more nuanced, if, if, it's, if it's not a simply monetary phenomenon and if there's, you know, a whole bunch of things that were happening and the fiscal part of it, the, the stimulus and the supply chains and all, but all this rising aggregate demand, even if the costs give us a good amount of discussion, what about the solution? Are we still married to the idea that this is mostly a, a solution that will come from central banks? Is there anything that government can do through fiscal policy? I mean, are we learning something there? Is there anything to actually look at it? Or, or is that like dangerous, a dangerous place to go? I don't think it's a dangerous place to go. As, as academics, we really need to think in those open-minded terms. Monetary policy is definitely a, a big factor when it comes to the economy, and inflation in particular. That doesn't mean it's the only factor. And if it's not the only factor, then in many cases, you do want to think about all these influences. The dictum, money is everywhere, a monet, you know, monetary phenomenon, that's oversimplified. And it's not true. I mean, we think maybe the stimulus had something to do with it. Or in Europe, energy prices had something to do with it. Now, you might say, yeah, but there was always something monetary policy could have done to do that. Well, yeah, but that just means that they're on equal footing on some level. There are many influences. And whether you want to completely undo those other factors or not with monetary policy is somewhat of an open question, I think. Is there anything else that we have learned that could actually play an effective role here or any other type of source of policy? My question is like, 
once you know the disease, is there only one medicine or which is monetary policy, or there could be other medicines that we are maybe not, we don't know enough, we're not thinking about them. The theory suggests that there's a lot of other levers. In practice, clearly for large persistent inflations, they have a very big monetary component. You know, practically speaking, I would agree there, the focus should be on monetary policy. Although fiscal policy and other things can have an influence. For these more moderate, temporary, however temporary, you think it is. For those situations, it's a lot less clear. And I think we also just have less experience with these kind of uh, uh, inflation. So there, I think we should be open-minded, but I'm not ready to suggest a policy that's better than monetary policy. Um, but I think our models are speaking to us and telling us, you know, it's not so obvious. As a Latin American, I would be very skeptical of a solution using, let's say, price controls because of, you know, the difficulties implementing them and, and, and other, other distortions they may have. You know, anecdotally, we, we've seen price controls also in Latin America. It's hard to find like exactly super rigorous research about it, but anecdotally it has created like lots of distortions. Yeah, exactly. I think price controls is one of those things where I don't think there's complete consensus because I think there is an intuition that they can help you when you're doing other things right too. But when people rely on it exclusively, it's clearly been a disaster. But you know that's that gets into the subtle area where suppose you have a high inflation and you want to bring it down and I'm not talking the inflation rates in the US or Europe today but you know more Argentine 30, 40, 100% inflation rate a year, getting the house in order and getting monetary policy in order is a first order there, but could it help the transition to coordinate people to use other tools? I think that's very much an open question because of the difficulty, you know, uh, studying that question empirically is just very hard. I see you as a very pragmatic academic. You want to work on questions that have policy implications or that are policy relevant. Another unfair question for you, but to what extent have you struggled with kind of, you know, what you find in your models and, and the theory and, and even the empirics that you look. But when you confront that with the political economy of things, with the fact that, you know, yes, it makes sense to do this this sort of taxation, but that will never go through a Congress or that would never go through a politician who has maybe more, much more of a short-term thing. So I wonder, again, very unfair question because I think it applies to all of us, but in your case in particular, I wonder, do you struggle with that tension? And sometimes I'm more fascinated if what comes out is something we hadn't expected. And that might also mean it's less likely to get implemented. Sometimes I think we are overly trying to justify or reverse engineer things. And that I find less exciting or less useful. So if you let the economics speak, and to me, doing theory is just doing good, is you know trying to think clearly about an economic topic. So if you let the model or the theory speak, and it says something that you didn't expect, sometimes you learn a lot more. And sometimes that has happened, but then maybe the, the policy prescriptions are even further from you know being on the table right now. And those I don't think are useless. It just means we might, in 50 years, find we want to have, let's say, taxes that depend on your age or taxes that depend on your past income, not just your current income. But I think we have to follow the answers and not just try and play reverse engineering things uh, to weigh in on a current debate that's much more locally optimal and just thinking about some kind of decision that's on the table. But sometimes it's the reverse that I feel completely frustrated because, I mean, the best case 
again, is Argentina, where I think, for instance, we just have very bad policies and ideas that they hold back much better policies. And there it's clearly more a frustration with the politics and the bad economics of the, the way policies are, are, are run than with, you know, say, the ideas or the economics or the model. So, you know, let's say in Argentina, we barely have an income tax, a nonlinear income tax character. We barely have it. It was named badly. So it was named, you know, it wasn't named income tax. It was named profit tax. And because of that, just psychologically, people think you can't apply that to me. I'm just a high earner, but not, this isn't profit. This is labor income. And so, you know, at the end of the day, it gets uh, politicized. A basic idea in public finance is that a lot has to be done just by the best tool, which is a nonlinear income tax schedule. And if and there we can have a lot of discussions and, and disagreements about how much we want to redistribute, but we should use that tool after those discussions take place. And instead, what we have is a, a patchwork of inefficient taxes or regulations to try and redistribute, and we don't use that basic tax. So that's frustrating. Kind of my last curveball to you is, based on everything you've seen and studied and, and, and the current events, what do you think are the biggest questions that are lie ahead of us based out of you know your knowledge and this work, not on inflation in particular, but in general about optimal policies? What do you think we are going to be thinking in you know 10 years on what are the biggest questions that we still are not there yet? That is a curveball. That's a big curveball. <laughs> Let me try and answer a piece of this that you, 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 you know, you were getting at. Where is my mind going? I mean, I don't like to predict what others should work on or what's the big thing we should be doing. I felt very constrained by the way we think about macro with regards to inflation in the last few years. And that doesn't mean I want to throw away everything. The, the basic models are great for some things. But I felt like, let's say, when COVID hit, it was a big sectoral shift, that that was a big part to, to consider. And let's say an aggregate model without sectors doesn't cut it. So we worked on that. I've worked on oligopoly and the effect that has on inflation. So I've been pushing around. And then recently, I became interested in things like expectations, how much those matter for inflation. I think people were talking about either if expectations were well anchored, we didn't have to worry about expectations. Conversely, people got really worried that if inflation went up and expectations became unanchored, that would be really bad for inflation. So expectations was a concern. It wasn't so clear to me that we knew what the effect of inflation expectations was on inflation. And at the same time, I found that instead, inflation might have intrinsic inertia which if you come from Argentina, it's kind of a bad word to say that because it's usually used in as, as an excuse by bad governments. I want to make clear, like I started to think a little outside the box and maybe that's driven me to think about some models or approach them in a way that's given me some different answers than kind of the basic mainstream. And I kind of navigating this with an open mind, I think that you mentioned with a lot of more questions than answers at the moment and in producing some research that I hope helps me get closer to answers. You know, another issue I bumped into recently is how to think about inflation between prices and wages and whether that produces a, a wage price spiral and whether that means we can stop inflation or not without a recession. That's driven us to think about inflation in a way based on conflict. And that is another example of something I didn't expect. The word conflict is a little char overcharged and maybe uh, ambiguous. So basically what we mean is that Inflation at its core 
its most proximate cause is a disagreement on relative prices. If you're in a general equilibrium model and everyone's sort of okay with our prices, relative prices, and they control some of those prices, you wouldn't see inflation. But if people are presently unhappy with their relative prices and they only get to change them occasionally, so they get to change their nominal prices occasionally, they will do so in a way to get closer to the, the goals they have for the relative prices. And since they don't, don't agree on those relative prices, they're not collectively going to get closer to the relative prices and stop changing prices. What's going to happen is you're just going to get these efforts are going to produce nominal uh, increases in inflation. So this is an old idea. Our take is a, a, a little bit different in the sense that we don't want to say this inflation was conflict and this other inflation was money. We want to say the most proximate cause of inflation is conflict. And that's a useful way to think about it even if you want to tell a traditional story where it's money, but it also gives you a framework that's broader and you can start thinking about other things. So what I have in mind is how do we think about, for instance, the role of unions or collective bargaining and inflation? And this framework allows you to think about those things a little more, you know, with a little more flexibility. Let me follow up with also your thoughts within that framework, perhaps of the idea that, that part of inflation is being driven by firms deciding to, you know, quote unquote, take advantage of the situation and increasing their markups, uh, et cetera. And that's an idea that has been running around that, you know, if you look at the traditional literature, I would say that's not, at least in a very competitive sector, that's not, it's not possible. Yeah, it does. But I think it even fits in, in a basic New Keynesian model. If firms want higher markups because maybe their demand curves have become more inelastic, you will get more inflation unless you do something that reduces output and reduces real wages. The standard model has that, but I think what's missing in the standard approach to that is it makes it look so simple. You know, it's been an evolution in my thinking is to realize that if that happens, it's not so easy to undo it with monetary policy. It'll take time. So an example of that is the following. I mean, suppose suddenly firms are exposed to higher energy costs and they need to raise prices. And it would be similar if suddenly they wanted to have higher markups. In a standard model, we could prevent inflation if suddenly workers all agreed to have a lower real wage. And that's what the standard model predicts would stop inflation. But now you can think that in the real world, that's unlikely to be true for many reasons. Maybe just behaviorally, people think, I want to earn what I earned last time. If inflation was, you know, 8% this year, I want an 8% raise. And it's not so simple as like, you know, the competitive model says your real wage should be lower. Maybe because I'm represented by a union in some countries. Unionization is low in the US, but maybe in some other countries it's not. And general point is, that process is not as easy as I think we've painted it. So even though in the long run, maybe those things will not produce inflation if we take the right response, in the short run, and the short run might not be super short, I think they are relevant. So yeah, they definitely fit in my framework. They also fit in a more traditional New Keynesian model, but I think there's a tendency to overlook that because what people would say is if markups go up, output needs to fall and the real wage needs to fall. The typical way we discuss those models we, we do a change of variables that I think makes us lose sight of the intuition and the economics. We do a change of variables and we talk about output gaps. So what would happen in an economy if suddenly markups went up is, well, no problem. You can avoid inflation if you accept to have a zero output gap, but a zero output gap now requires a lower output level. And workers also have to be very smart and accept the lower real wage. And that's how, you know, we predict everything will be dandy. My perspective has evolved and thanks to reading some papers for instance, I think Blanchard Ghali have a nice paper talking about how if you have energy shocks, 
and real wages are, are, are somewhat rigid. Maybe perhaps for that behavioral reason I said that people still want the real wage they had before. In those situations, you're going to get this very inflationary uh, bias. Even in the standard models, it's there, but you know it's downplayed or the, no, the way we solve them in terms of output gaps, instead of talking about levels or instead of realizing the real wage needs to fall, people make confusing comments. For instance, people would say an energy price shock doesn't prove inflation. It's just a level effect on prices. That's not true in our basic models. What's true is if the energy price goes up and you manage to make real wages fall, then you can not have inflation. But if real wages don't fall and energy prices go up, that's not a level effect. That will have inflationary effects. The same thing goes for markups. Some people will argue that inflation is driven by an increase in market power or markups. Those people are teased for bringing that up because they say, well, no, that wouldn't produce inflation. It would just be a, a level effect. They're kind of talking past each other. That's partly right. In the long run, you could avoid having inflation, just have higher markups if, you know, in the long run, we get lower real wages and we get lower output. But, you know, I think if you think that there are surges and that that process takes time, I don't think it's it's wrong to think about those channels. Let me briefly push back as a devil's advocate and ask you, why is that important at all in the following sense? Whatever the the mechanism that is generating this change in growth, like not on levels, like whether energy price or on markups going up, there probably was a certain shock that happened before that actually sparkled all these changes, right? So maybe with the, when energy price is not a good example, with the markup, Something must have affected the decision of, of firms to to increase their markup, and in this in this case, it could have been, you know, the fact that they realize that there's much more demand for their goods, and that probably would come from the traditional models of like, well, there's fiscal expansion, there's some sort of monetary expansion that is actually at the end giving people much higher level of demand than what the supply can achieve. So devil's advocate, like, why do we care so much about what's happening in the middle when it comes to the solution? So you're right about that. If markups are going up because demand is high, the solution is still lower demand maybe. But that might not be the whole story. So it's possible demand went up, but also got more inelastic. And if we lower demand, it might stay inelastic so that the markups still stay high. It might be a little bit what's happening now that you know interest rates have been going up and you know demand continues to be at full throat. There are lags and everything for these effects, but um, to go back to the sectoral pandemic, Example in a paper we wrote for Jackson Hole with Garrieri, uh, Lorenzoni, and Straub, my co authors, we showed that you know, if you had these sectoral shifts, it could produce inflation. And yeah, you could lower inflation by lowering aggregate demand, but that was a very blunt tool. So, what happens is you do want to do a little bit of that, but not as much as, inf as if inflation were coming from a very even increase in aggregate demand across all sectors. So it does matter these things. And, you know, that's there's an, there's ideas related to that going back to Tobin, 1972, and others. So a lot of, <laughs> I actually want to say this, that I think there's a lot of wisdom out there and we need to rediscover it and have a bigger toolkit, a bigger set of ideas and models. But it does matter in some cases. You got to make the case, but I think uh, it does matter in some cases. Going back to the energy case, if energy goes up and workers want a certain real wage, let's say, just as an example, that's the Blanchard-Galley model. By cooling down the economy, you're, you might help if that lowers their real wage demands, but there might be other solutions that are better. And in general, what they show, this is a paper, you know, it's been around for a while. They had shown that 
if that's what's going on, you want to do less of that. So you want to, you know, lean against uh, that inflation, but less than usual. So yeah, it paints a more subtle picture. One lesson here is that usually we know that there's no one size fits all policy for the most part. When it comes to inflation, we tend to think that there's one size fits all policy. <laughs> but I think your message, I think it's very, very appropriate that, you know, there, it, it's not as simple as that. Yeah, I think the truth is the Fed and the way they communicate, they, they have to keep things simple. And even the basic textbooks show that it's not so simple and that certain shocks you want to respond more than others. I'm not saying anything new there. We're expanding on that a little bit and, and showing that these times, maybe those ideas are very important and expanding on that. But I think even the textbooks say that. It's just what you read in the papers is super oversimplified. And then uh, people have this idea that it's just, we just have to respond almost like a thermostat. You know, we just, we're on autopilot. And that might not be a bad idea during regular times. But kind of my perspective has been for these huge shocks, these are huge, big things that happened. The pandemic, the global financial crisis, they were kind of rare <laughs> and big. And there we have to think a little bit outside our box and maybe, you know, maybe open up a window, not just let the thermostat work. Fascinating. Well, Ivan, I want to thank you for, for your time and for also imparting your wisdom to us. And, and I look forward to continue reading and seeing all your fascinating research. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Danny. It was my pleasure. Well, and that's everything for today's episode. Thank you for listening to all of you out there. And as we close this season, don't forget to please leave us a rating, leave a comment if you can, share with your family and friends, email us asking us for questions or giving us recommendations about other guests that you will want to see. And it's been such a treat to be with you this season. I want to thank our editor and producer, Adrian Velasquez-Martinez. And I wish you a happy summer to all of you and see you again, or we listen to each other again in the fall.